Welcome to the First Baptist Church podcast from First Baptist Church in Navasota, Texas. For more information, visit fbcnavasota.org. beautiful. Thank you, Marsha and Mark and Ross and Sharon and Richard. If that doesn't fire you up in the words of the old Oilers coach, Bum Phillips, your wood is wet. And Archie, I have to agree with the pastor. That is one fabulous jacket. If I, if I get a matching jacket, could we do door-to-door evangelism together in Navasota? I think that'd be fine. That'd be fine. Well, it is so good to be with you this morning. I'm so honored to be presented to the church as a candidate for pastor to student ministries, evangelism, and worship. And I'm so grateful for your presence today. I just want to remind you before I preach that a vote for Chad will make you glad. <laughs> and to secure a good outcome, Nancy Jane and I have gone to the expense of busing in a couple hundred folks from Houston for the vote. They'll be arriving in just a few moments, and we're grateful that everything will work out. We have felt so loved and encouraged over the last few weeks. And I will tell you what, one of the things I know strongly about First Baptist Church in Navasota, this is a friendly church, Pastor, and a loving church. And you all have been so kind to Nancy Jane and me. We're so honored to be considered for this position. And uh, I'd like to tell you a few things about me and my family um, before I share a message from God's Word. I'm so grateful to live in Navasota, the hometown of my wife, Nancy Jane, who grew up exactly four blocks from here at 903 Holland Street. She's a hometown girl, um, and she is the best thing that's happened to me outside of Jesus' faith, I'm telling you. She is so fine, and I'll uh, brag on her in just a moment. Um, I grew up in Katy, Texas, uh, home of the Katy Tigers, um, and had... uh, a bunch of challenges early in life. My parents divorced when I was one. I had an alcoholic and very abusive stepfather from the age of 3 to 13. My uh, parents divorced when I was one. My p- mom and stepdad divorced when I was 13. We moved from Abilene to Katy. And when I was growing up, I tried to fill that hole in my heart uh, from the brokenness and pain that I'd experienced through achievement uh, in school and athletics and felt like I was sitting on top of a beach ball sometimes in the water uh, trying to make myself content and to feel good. My freshman year at the University of Texas, I was in my dorm room after football practice one day, and a gentleman who was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ rudely knocked on my door and walked in as I opened the door and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. And I was so filled with pride and so confident uh, that my good works would earn me acceptance into heaven when he asked me what am I thought my chances would be of going to heaven between 1 and 100%, I proudly said 75% sure that I would go to heaven. And when he asked me, Chad, what would you do if you stood before God today and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? I said, well, I'm a good person. I believe in God. I don't drink. I was class president three years, team captain of the football team, and uh, I'm polite and uh, have a mom who's a principal. And everything I knew to do to try to download my resume to impress God, and he lovingly looked me in the eye and said, Chad, I didn't come here to hurt your feelings. I want to be your friend. I don't want to make you mad, but I want to tell you those two answers you gave to life's most important questions are the wrong answers. And I quickly ushered him out of my room, angry that he had told me that. Well, he had clearly explained to me the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he came to this earth. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He suffered His blood was shed on the cross. He died. He was buried. And praise God, he rose on the third day. And that 
that if I would turn from my sin and place my trust in him, he would forgive me. I didn't do it that day, but a week later, I was overwhelmed with the weight and the guilt of my sin. And I was certain that indeed I was lost. I was not a Christian. Interestingly, I was a year earlier elected president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at Katie High School, one full year before I was a Christian. I guess I was politically gifted. And I brought onion dip and uh, Bob's kettle chips to the meetings every week, and I think that also (laughs) won me the vote. But I got down on my knees that day in October 1987, and I cried out for forgiveness. I placed my trust in Christ, and I rose up, friends, that day, and I had a brand new heart. I had a brand new passion. It wasn't about uh, my fame and my future, but it was about the kingdom of God and what God was doing in my life. And I began right after college to serve the Lord in full-time ministry, uh, serving at some wonderful churches in Texas, including Hyde Park Baptist Church and First Baptist Church Katy and Second Baptist Church in Houston. But for 27 years, I've had the joy of serving in full-time ministry, 11 of those years serving in itinerant evangelistic ministry all over the world in 18 countries. And uh, this last fall, I conducted my 67th international mission trip, uh, most of those trips in Africa, and I'll share about those in a few moments. Um, Nancy Jane, as I said, grew up in Navasota, and her being in this church, I wish you could see her uh, during the greeting time. She's like a politician, work in the room. She knows so many people, and so many people know and love her. And her parents still live down the street, and it's so good to be back. She's a residential real estate agent in Houston, um, very, very talented uh, musician, incredible artist, uh, an amazing homemaker, amazing mom, so creative, so beautiful. Uh, That's obvious, though, and I'm so grateful to get to be her man. Nancy Jane went to Ole Miss, and we were super proud of that until two weeks ago. That fella did that little thing in the end zone. That was quite silly. We're still trying to recover from that. I have four children. Chase is a sophomore at Texas Tech University. Get your guns up, anybody here. Uh, Cheers for the Raiders. Uh, He is an incredibly talented musician and is very, very bright. Julie's an 18-year-old freshman at Texas Tech. Uh, she is absolutely loving and sweet and is a budding evangelist herself. We just got a text message from her a couple of days about her engaging one of her professors in an evangelistic conversation, and that made me super proud. Bobby's a 16-year-old sophomore at Seven Lakes High School, and Katie, he is a phenomenal middle linebacker, and he is so sweet and so vicious, he will rip your head off during a play and then pat you on the behind and tell you that he loves you right afterwards. <laughs> Interesting mixture of gifts. Um, We also have a new baby uh, named Charlie. Charlie is seven weeks old. Some of you have met him here at First Baptist. He's in the nursery this morning. Uh, Charlie is God's incredible, gracious gift to us. Uh, We've been in the process of hoping and praying for uh, the ability to adopt a child. Um, On the 29th of April, uh, we got a call from the lady that was helping us with with an adoption uh, of, a, of a baby in Houston and said that the baby had, was about to be born three weeks earlier. We had Ross three, uh, we had two tickets to the Avengers in College Station that day, which were hard to get. And so we thought, Avengers, baby, Avengers, baby. We chose the baby. And we went to Houston. This little remarkable young infant, Charlie, was given to us to be our baby. We're in the process of adopting that. will be, Lord willing, completed very soon. But Charlie is phenomenal. He is a gift. His mother was in a crisis pregnancy and was overwhelmed with her life with four children raising her younger sister, and she went to abort him. And God led her to a crisis pregnancy center in Houston that we volunteered at for years. 
And they helped her choose life and then choose adoption. And then she was presented with several families, and she chose us to be his parents. And that little dude, somehow in his heart, deep inside him, I believe God has convinced him that he was rescued. And talk about a politician. Man, he smiles at everybody that he meets. And interestingly, Charlie, six weeks ago, was elected the mayor of Whitehall, Texas. Charlie is the youngest mayor in America. And God has great plans for Charlie. When you go home today on your desktop, check out mayorcharlie.org. And his passion is to tell the world, through us at this point, how good it is to be alive. And his two political planks in his uh, candidacy were that he's pro-life and he's pro-adoption. His motto is, make America kind again. Don't we need that? We all need to meet Charlie, and he's got a great uh, influence on many people already. We, have, uh, we live on a small farm in Whitehall, and we've got some critters. We have four dogs, uh, Toddy, uh, Ladybird, Termite, and Ivanka. We have three cats, Tailpipe, and her two unnamed feral kittens. We have three sheep, Barnabas and Zacchaeus, and one of our sheep witnessed a terrible night when three of her sheep colleagues were killed by a coyote, and she's still damaged from that and lives a very erratic life, and we call her she cray-cray. We have two goats, uh, Titus and Philemon. We have two donkeys, Mary and Martha. And we have uh, eight Texas Longhorns, Barnabas, uh, excuse me, uh, Bathsheba and her son Solomon. Uh, we have uh, Priscilla and her daughter, Queen Esther. We have, um, who else do we have, baby? Naomi and her son, King David. And then two weeks ago, Ruth had a baby that we named John the Baptist. And then when my name got passed along, passed her to the personnel committee, and it was met with approval, we up graded his name to John the First Baptist. So we have a calf <laughs> named after this church. And we have a very sweet time out in the country. We also have a pig, 475-pound uh, hog, we call him our yard hog, uh, named after the man who actually led Billy Graham to Christ. Anybody know who him? his name is? Mordecai Ham. That's the hog's name. Mordecai Ham. It was May the 2nd, 1992, and I had just arrived in Philadelphia. I had been invited to try out for the Philadelphia Eagles football team, and I went into the bowels of Veterans Stadium, went to the little cage where the grumpy fella who looked like Danny DeVito was passing out shorts and helmets and all that. I got my equipment, put it on, found my uh, a locker that I was sharing with another free agent, and was trying to not be too conspicuous and not do anything too silly, and was walking back to the restroom to use the bathroom. And I heard this big, booming voice from across the room. It said, come here, boy. And I didn't want to appear too eager, so I kept walking. But the voice got louder, and it seemed to hit me in the back of the head. Come here, boy. And I turned around, and it was a guy named Reggie White. Now, if you know the name of Reggie White, raise your hand. For you young folks, Reggie White was the greatest defensive lineman in the history of the NFL. Some folks will say J.J. Watt is now, but I have to disagree because I got run over by the guy many times. Uh, Reggie White was 6'5", 310 pounds, ran a 4'640", and benched 500. Miguel, did you hear that? 500 pounds, 310 pounds weight, running a 4'6". He was unstoppable. And I turned around, and Reggie White was pointing his finger at me, and I looked, pointed at myself, and I said, me? And he said, like that, pulled me over. And as I walked across the locker room, I felt like I was going through the Bataan Death March, and all around him was this array of all-pro Amazing athletes, Jim McMahon, Randall Cunningham, Keith Jackson, Keith, Keith Byers, Jerome Brown, Seth Joyner, Eric Allen. These are really famous, incredible football players, and they're all kind of holding their hands over their eyes. And I'm going, what is going on? I was shaking like a leaf when I approached Reggie White, the Minister of Defense. My voice cracked like I was going through puberty. I said, yes, sir. 
And he looked up from his stool, and I was right in front of him, and he put his hands right between the sixes and grabbed a big handful of, of mesh jersey and pulled me right next to him. And looking down into his eyes, I literally thought to myself, Oh, Lord Jesus, it's been a good life. <laughs> and the whole locker room was walking, watching. There was a pregnant pause, and Reggie White looked into my eyes, and he said this, Hey, boy, your jersey's on backwards. <laughs> and I looked down. And sure enough, the big numbers were in the front, the Eagles was in the back, and I was sufficiently humiliated. I took my jersey off, turned it around, and put it back and said, thank you, sir, and went back to the locker room. It was awful. Well, thankfully, the next morning, uh, I was in the veteran stadium reading my Bible, desperately asking God for help, because I was getting uh, wiped out during practice. And I walked back into the locker room, Reggie was coming from the parking lot, and he and he, uh, we met at the same time. He saw my Bible under my arm. And he said, say, son, are you a believer? I said, yeah, Reggie. He goes, tell me your testimony, son. And we walked off like Mean Joe Green and the little kid. And I got to share my story about Christ. And he became uh, a friend to me and encouraged me. Every day at practice, he'd come up and pat me on behind and say, man, I'm praying for you, son. And then rip my head clean off of my jersey. <laughs> about five minutes. I said, Reggie, I thought you were praying for me. Uh, he was a, a pro, and he was very, very popular. I learned something that day. I learned that it's really important that we have our jersey on the right way. Not just on a football team, but in life, and certainly as the body of Christ. Do you know that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, God has given you a jersey. You've been cloaked in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and you have been identified with him, and you bear his name. And as if it's as if we have a jersey, and on the front it says, The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and on the back we have our own name. Sometimes we have our jerseys on the right way, and we're serving the Lord, and we're praying, and we're studying our scriptures, and we're telling people the good news of Christ, and we're vitally linked in with the body of Christ. And there's other times that we get discouraged, and we turn away from the Lord, and we become fearful, and we close our mouths, and we withdraw, and we take our eyes off of the cross, and the name that's on the front of the jersey becomes our name our interest, our ambition, our motivation. Well, I want to encourage you today, just as I encourage myself, to have your jersey on the right way. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. <coughs> you know, in the days, um, Coach Randolph, our quarterback coach and head basketball coach in the back, before spread offenses, the quarterback would typically walk into the huddle and kneel down and give the play. Isn't that the way it used to be, Coach? Now we have hand signals and signs on the sideline. But for a quarterback to come into a huddle, um, it's a very important moment. The ball is actually not advanced during a huddle, but instructions are given that are critical to, critical to the success of the offense. Now, can you imagine... Uh, Sharon, Charlie Brewer, or you wonderful fighting Texas Aggie friends, Kelly Mond, or Dallas Cowboy fans, Dak Prescott, or Houston Texans fan, Deshaun Watson, or Longhorn fan, Sam Ellinger. There might be two of us in the room, or more. Walking in, kneeling down, and giving potentially during a game-winning drive the critical instructions for what's to happen, and then passionately challenging everyone that we've got to get it done. Imagine today if we are literally, as we see in the Great Commission, that we are the disciples, 500 or so who are gathered, 
who have been shocked to see their Savior crucified and then encouraged to see Him resurrected, but they're gathered together and Christ is preparing to ascend to heaven. He's preparing to go to be with His Father. Imagine Him if we were those people today. And Jesus Christ were literally at this pulpit and He was giving us the marching orders for our lives and for our ministries. Here's what I believe Jesus would say in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, even to the ends of the earth will I be with you. This is the marching orders for the church. Jesus gives us this incredible outline of what we're supposed to do. And if God is so gracious to call uh, me to this church on the pastoral staff and Nancy Jane and me into this church as members, this is the blueprint for the student ministry. This is the blueprint for the missions ministry. It's actually quite simple. He lays it out for us very specifically. And this is the heart of what God wants for you and for me, for us to have our jerseys on right and to live out loud in a beautiful way, proclaiming the gospel with our words and with our actions in this world. This is what God wants for us. Let's look at this very briefly. Jesus tells us to go make disciples. This word go is not always meaning just go do something. The Greek construction is literally as you are going, as you're going to work, as you're going to class, as you're going to be spending time with your family and with your friends. We are to make disciples. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to call people to come to Christ. Mark's gospel actually records the Great Commission a little bit differently. He says to go into all the world and preach the good news to every creature. I had a friend years ago at a church I worked at in the woodlands, Greg Medina, and he was so fired up. He was a young believer, and he hadn't been around enough crusty, frozen, chosen folks to know that you're not supposed to tell the gospel. He wanted to just tell everyone the good news. And late one night, he was a tow truck driver, and he couldn't find anybody to talk to. So he went to Lake Woodlands, and he gathered up some ducks and preached the gospel to the ducks, Jeffrey. I said, bro, what were you doing? He goes, I just, I had to tell somebody the good news of Christ. Well, he literally was fulfilling this beautiful challenge from Christ in Mark 16, 15. We are to go to make disciples. We're to baptize them. Baptism is an outward expression of our inward faith. It is representing the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you notice when your pastors here at First Baptist baptize someone, they actually bring them up out of the water. Pastor, have you ever lost anyone in a baptism? Just one? Okay. Uh, there's some folks that we baptize. It might be better if we just left them under and sent them on to glory. But typically we bring them up, we hug them, we dry them off, one of the committee members drives them off, and we send them out to go make disciples, to go bring people to Christ. It's incredibly important that we're committed to that. We are so grateful to be um, in the part of our church calendar where we celebrate the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I hope you know a little bit about Lottie Moon, a woman who in the 1850s was commissioned by the Foreign Mission Board to go to China to preach the gospel and mainly share Christ door-to-door with women and did an incredible ministry. She was a mighty woman, small in stature, four foot three inches. But I guarantee you, if you came toe-to-toe with Lottie Moon, you would know you'd encountered a mighty, powerful woman of God. Lottie Moon had a jersey, an itty little bitty, triple extra small jersey, but she wore it proudly. And we're so grateful during the season to cooperatively donate to missions that we serve together as Baptists. 
So we make disciples, we baptize folks, and then it says to teach them everything God has commanded them to do. We teach, we disciple, we train, we equip to share the gospel with these people, to baptize them and to teach them. And we teach them to share Christ and to baptize and to disciple and to make disciples over and over and over and so on and so on and so on. That is our mission. Aren't you grateful, friends, that 2,000 years ago a group of Christians were serious about making disciples and declaring the gospel? And that they led people to Christ, who led people to Christ, who led people to Christ. And 2,000 years later, this gospel, this glorious message of redemption landed on our laps and penetrated our hearts. Because of a group of faithful believers, even the ones that Jesus was speaking to here. Yesterday, uh, Sharon uh, and Loy, I was hollering so loudly for Baylor to beat the Oklahoma Sooners. And I was uh, last weekend hollering so loudly for Ole Miss to beat Mississippi State uh, until that rebel receiver had to go to the fire hydrant. Um, And two weeks ago, um, I screamed so passionately in Waco for my incredibly beloved Navasota Rattlers to advance in the playoffs, so much so that my tonsils were on the turf. When we lose football games, it's hard. There are so many great things in life that break our hearts when we lose. When we see marriages lost, when we see hopes lost and dreams lost, when we see teens lose their purity, when we see broken lives end up in total defeat through suicide, there are losses all around us. And don't you know, friends, that part of the journey that we have in our sanctification is that we endure incredible trials on this earth. And your team will not always win. Go to Austin for proof. But there is a team that always wins. It's the team that is called the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Years ago at Southwestern Seminary, my professor teaching the book of Revelation walked in and said, I'm going to tell you in one sentence what this whole book is about, and then we can go home. And said, here it is. The book of Revelation says, we when don't you know that when we have our jerseys on right and we're advancing the gospel of jesus christ and we're going out with archie in that fabulous jacket and we're declaring the truth of christ in navasota and to the ends of the earth we are on the winning team god has guaranteed our success if you're like me sometimes and you don't know what to say and you get fearful god says open your mouth and i will put words it's like the holy spirit stands behind the person you're talking to with cue cards and says say this say this And God will be faithful. And God has promised that he will populate heaven with members of every tongue and every tribe and every nation and every people group on earth. And that our job, and if you call me to this church, my job will be to encourage and strengthen our passion as a church to have a heart for the students of Grimes County, to declare the gospel to them on the campus, at their games, in their homes, all around this area, and to encourage a heart for missions. So many of you already do, but friends, I've got to tell you, We can do so much more. I can do so much more. We are on the winning team, the body of Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is the one who is saving. Jesus is the one whose gospel is going out. Our job is to be faithful. I have to ask you, is that good news to you today? Is it good news to you today that that you are on God's side, that you are on God's team? And then when you go out in his name, he will fill you with power. 
the power of the Holy Spirit to be an effective witness. It is great news to me. He tells us that he will be with us to the ends of the earth. He will always be with us. He'll never send you out alone. He will give you grace and he will give you strength. Praise God. There's one word that I left out and didn't describe. It's actually the word nations. Go into all the nations and preach the good news. Take the good news to all the nations. This word in the Greek is not the word that we use for geopolitical state. It's actually the word that we use for ethno-linguistic groups that have unique cultures, unique languages, and even unique physical characteristics. According to the Joshua Project today, there are 17,094 distinct people groups on earth. 7,175 of these people groups are unreached. What does that mean? It means they don't have a reproducing church. It means they don't have the gospel. They don't have Bibles. They don't have the body of Christ that's come into that culture. There may be some Christians there, but they are unreached for the gospel. 7.67 billion, 3.19 billion do not know what we know. They don't have healthy reproducing churches, friends. We have a big mission. And guess what? It's not given to any other group but his church. It's our job. And we have so much ahead of us. I'm so grateful that God has given this church a deep burden for the nations. I'm so encouraged to see all of these flags. I'm so encouraged to know many of you that have a heart for missions and I want to just very briefly, before I close, share with you about the graciousness uh, that God has extended to me and to Nancy Jane and the ministry that we founded and lead uh, primarily in Africa. Momentum Missions was started five years ago, primarily in the nations of Zambia and Zimbabwe. I've spent most of the time in in Zambia. We have uh, eight staff members in Zambia, um, Enoch, Moses, Naphtali, Abuid, Godlink, uh, Isaac, and Samson, all good biblical names. Uh, Godlink's name is actually Godric, but we said, if you're going to link people to God, we're going to change your name. It's now Godlink. And he says, okay, you can do that in Africa. And then in Zimbabwe, uh, God knows, Shepherd, uh, Edwin, and Talkmore. Talkmore Kutukwananzi. Isn't that a great name? Talk more about the Lord. Yes, sir. We have four primary focuses in Momentum Missions. One is to proclaim the gospel in typically in public schools. In Zambia, we have letters of, of authorization and uh, uh, mandate literally from the education department in the government where our guys take these letters that say, you must let Momentum Missions into the schools to preach the gospel and to distribute Bibles. We're an official NGO of the Zambian government. And when we come to a district, all of the schools let us in. Our last project in uh, August, we had the privilege to speak in 45 public schools to 42,000 students and distribute 37,000 Gideon Bibles, um, somewhere around 28,000 professions of faith. You might ask, how is that even possible? Well, I'll tell you why. In Zambia, where there is rampant unemployment, somewhere in the rural areas around 80%, life expectancy, depending on what organization you look at, 45 to 55 years old, 40% of the orphans having no, 40% of the children in the public schools being orphans, either single or double orphans, kids your age, guys, aren't thinking about college or jobs or homes or anything like that. It's pure survival. When you stand before people corporately broken like that and they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the best news they've ever heard. It's like fishing with a net. You mean I can be forgiven? I can be set free? I can be given heaven? 
You mean you brought a soccer ball to my school? One ball, it's the only school they have in their entire school. And every child gets their own copy of the Word of God. It is unbelievable. Over the last five years, our ministry has had the privilege to reach over 320,000 students and teachers with the gospel and distribute somewhere around 260,000 New Testaments or Psalms and Proverbs. The second thing that we're committed to is pastor training, where we do pastor training conferences and ongoing training. Um, We had 1,019 pastors and church leaders at our last conference. And can you imagine, Pastor Clyde, um, a man of God who is passionate, gifted, totally committed, and has no books, has no formal theological training, has no access to the things that we take for granted. And when we stand before them and teach them, they write everything down and they go preach it that Sunday. And then the next, they preach the next Sunday. They are so deserving of training and equipping. The third thing that we're committed to is the ongoing support of our national evangelists, the 12 guys on our team we support financially, we help. They have nothing On average, a good day, a good month in a rural pastor's life, he might get $15 a month for his salary. Well, friends, that doesn't go much farther in Zambia than it does in Navasota. And then fourthly, as God allows us resources, we do development work. We've adopted a community in Zambia where we've built several buildings, school buildings, drilled a water well, done a lot of relief work. We've adopted another uh, uh, um, orphanage where we've done a lot of work, and we help every way that we can. The possibilities are so wide open. It would be my great privilege to uh, serve this church, ministering to students and leading out in missions. And if God has it on your heart uh, to help me do that and support me, that would be so grateful. If the vote is no, there are some Baptist bouncers that would like to talk to you out back (laughs) and help you see the light. I want to thank Ross and Pastor Clyde and the search committee and the personnel committee and the stewardship committee for being so gracious and kind uh, to invite me into this great adventure. And I trust that God has great days uh, ahead for all of us. And uh, let me pray for us as we close our time. God, I thank you so much for this church family, 160-plus years of being faithful in this community. Lord, I cannot even imagine the scope of the lives that have been changed because of this congregation. And I believe by your grace and for your glory, the greatest days of this congregation are ahead. I thank you for our leader, Pastor Clyde, and for Pastor Ross and Sharon and all the committee heads and all the leaders of every ministry that occurs here. You have been so kind to this group. And Lord, I thank you so much for the gospel that unites our hearts, that This beautiful story of the baby Jesus who condescended from heaven, who grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man and began a public ministry of healing and feeding and teaching and loving and forgiving. I'm thankful that this man was faithful unto death and that he rose again on the third day and that he will come again. Lord, may we put our jerseys on right May we serve you. May we get in line with his mission who said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Friend, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ before, if you've never turned from your sin and placed your faith in him, Jesus said something absolutely wonderful. He said, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to God except through faith. And if you'd be willing to turn to Christ today, I want you to, in your heart, quietly pray a prayer with me. God knows the condition of your soul, and if you're willing to turn to Him, He will forgive you. The Bible says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pray with me quietly in your heart. Pray, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Jesus, I am a sinner. I deserve to be punished in hell forever. But right now, I turn from my sins and I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.